Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, some news of inspectors general. Specifically the ones that the uh, Department of Homeland Security feels so warm and fuzzy just to hear that name, doesn't it? Uh, the Inspector General's office there tried to alert Congress in April of this year that Secret Service texts from the time of the January 6th thing had been erased. Oops. Uh-oh. Their efforts were nixed by its leadership. That's um, from documents that have been seen by the British newspaper, The Guardian. The officials inside the Inspector General's office prepared a memo that detailed how the Secret Service was resisting the oversight body's review into that date and delayed informing it about the lost texts after the memo was emailed to the Chief of Staff of the Inspector General. Its contents, according to the Guardian, were never seen again. <laughs> and the disclosure about the erased text messages was never included in Inspector General Joseph Kufari's semi-annual report to Congress about oversight work. The revelation shows the Secret Service only admitted the texts from January 6th were lost months after they were requested by the Inspector General's office and that that Inspector General... Joseph Kafari might have violated federal law in not reporting the matter in his report to Congress. Might have, might have violated federal law. Who hasn't done that? Apparently nobody these days. The memo was obtained by the Project on Government Oversight. The Inspector General Act of 1978 required Kufari to report significantly delayed access to information. The circumstances around the erasure of the Secret Service texts have been central to the uh, congressional investigation by the House January 6th committee. Remember them? They were in the news until this week. The uh, memo issue says, quote, Secret Service has resisted the Office of Inspector General's oversight activities and continued to significantly delay OIG's Inspector General's access to records impeding the progress of the January 6th review. Secret Service interviewees, said the memo, regularly indicated they would not provide documents to the Inspector General's office unless they first went through an internal review. That's a move potentially in violation of the Inspector General Act. Who hasn't violated? The memo also noted that on multiple occasions when the Secret Service produced documents months after they were requested, they also contained redactions. The Secret Service didn't indicate who approved or implied the redactions or why they were made. Well, that's why they're called the Secret Service, duh. Finally, career officials inside the Inspector General's office wrote, the Secret Service claimed they could not access crucial texts from January 6th because of a phone system migration in April of 2021 that wiped all data from the devices of Secret Service agents. These uh, phone migrations are turning out to be mighty convenient. Hello, welcome to the show. 
back home. G90 to the land of the beautiful queen. Gone back home to my baby, going back to New Orleans. Going back to New Orleans, but not there yet. From Santa Monica, California, I'm Harry Shearer. Welcome you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, a little thing we like to call News of the Warm, won't you? Some 
the war. We can listen to the war. Mm. I can hear it now. Well, this seems to fit. This seems to um, close a, a circle. What's one of the greatest sources of methane, which is one of the chief causes of warming climate? Landfills. I say land. Landfills are re- releasing large amounts of planet-warming methane gas into the atmosphere from the decomposition of waste. Well, why thought we just put it there and it? They are a significant contributor to such emissions in urban areas, particularly, according to a new study. Scientists use satellite data from Delhi and Mumbai in India, Lahore in Pakistan, and Buenos Aires in Argentina, identified specific locations in each city that persistently emit high methane levels. Guess what? All of them were landfills. The city's overall methane emissions were uh, from all sources were from one and a half to two and a half times higher than previous estimates. It's those damn previous estimates. The study published in Science Advances is aimed at helping local governments carry out targeted efforts to limit global warming by pinpointing specific sites of major concern. When organic waste like food, wood, or paper decomposes, it emits methane into the air. And we were blaming cows until just recently. Landfills are the third largest source of methane emissions globally after oil and gas systems. You know, uh, wells where we're, um, or installations where we're pumping out natural gas, uh, they leak a lot, and they leak methane a lot. And agriculture, there are your cows right there. Although methane only accounts for about one well, no, 11% of greenhouse gas emissions and lasts about a dozen years in the air. It um, traps 80 times more heat in the atmosphere than carbon dioxide does. At least 25% of today's warming is driven by methane from you and me, us humans. Let's hold hands and emit some methane, shall we? This is the first time that high-resolution satellite images have been used to observe in landfills and calculate their methane emissions, says the lead author of the study. He's from the Netherlands Institute for Space Research. Yes, they don't have enough space in the Netherlands. No, of course they don't. We found that these landfills, which are relatively small compared to city sizes, are responsible for a large fraction of total emissions from a given area, he says. So... Why don't we dump that stuff somewhere else? <laughs> okay, let's work on that. The birds no longer sing and the herbs no longer grow. Fish no longer swim in rivers that have turned a, monk, a murky brown. The animals do not roam. And the cows are sometimes found dead. The people in this northern Myanmar forest have lost a way of life that goes back generations. And it's not um, scaring the Muslims out of the country. But if they complain, they face the threat of death. This forest, according to the Associated Press, is is the source of several key metallic elements known as rare earths. Rare earths now reach into the lives of almost everyone on the planet. You know, we don't eat them. They turn up in everything from 
hard drives and cell phones to elevators and trains, especially vital to the fast-growing field of green energy feeding wind turbines and electric car engines. And end up in the supply chains of some of the most prominent companies in the world, your GM, your Volkswagen, your Mercedes, your Tesla, your Apple. But an AP investigation has found that their universal use hides a dirty open secret in the industry. Their cost is environmental destruction, the theft of land from villagers, oh that, and the funneling of money to brutal militias, like uh, one linked to Myanmar's secretive military government. As demand soars for rare earths along with green energy, the abuses are likely to grow. This rapid push to build out mining capacity of rare earths they get mined is being justified in the name of climate change, according to Judith Julie Michelle Klinger, author of the book Rare Earth's Frontiers. She's leading a federal project to trace illicit energy minerals. There's still this uh, push, she says, to find the right place to mine them, which is a place that is out of sight and out of mind, unquote. The AP investigation drew on dozens of interviews, customs data, corporate records, and Chinese Chinese academic papers, along with our old friend satellite imagery, and a geological analysis gathered by the environmental nonprofit Global Witness. About a third of the companies responded. Of those, about two-thirds didn't or wouldn't comment on their sourcing, including Volkswagen. Nearly all of the companies said they took environmental protection and human rights seriously. Some companies said they audited their rare earth supply chains. Others didn't or required only self-assessments from suppliers. GM said it would, uh, well, it did understand the risks of heavy rare earths metals and would source from an American supplier soon. Soon. Tesla didn't respond to repeated requests for comment. Of course, they don't have a public relations department anymore, so only Elon would respond. And he's, uh, is he on Mars yet? And Mercedes said they contacted suppliers to learn more in response to the inquiry from the Associated Press. Apple says a majority of their rare earths are recycled. They found no evidence of any from Myanmar. There's no way to make sure. The uh, State Department of the United States leads work on securing the U.S. rare earth supply. Didn't respond to repeated requests for comment. Experts say the government weighs the regulation of rare earths against other green goals, such as the sales and use of electric vehicles. With ongoing negotiations in Congress, the issue has become increasingly touchy. Rare earths are also omitted from the European Union's regulation on conflict materials. So companies have quietly continued shipping rare earths without environmental, social, and social and governance audits. What would be the result if now the world would say we want to do such audits on all rare earths production, said Thomas Crummer, director of Ginger International Trade and Investment, which does mineral and metal supply chain management. The result would be that 70% of production would be closed down. So it's a dirty industry we need to go clean. 
The story of Reros is one of a naked grab for resources, says the AP, while driving the wreckage to other countries. These elements are relatively common, despite their name, in trace amounts on the Earth's crust, possessed an extraordinary magnetic power critical to technology, but extracting enough rare earths requires intense mining that can be environmentally destructive. The United States offshored its rare earths mining to China in the 1980s because of environmental and cost issues. China's leader at the time declared rare earths China's answer to oil in the Middle East. Tens of, tens of thousands of Chinese in the countryside discovered they could make more in a month of mining than years of farming. For decades, the industry prospered. China became the world's foremost miner of rare earths. A Beijing magazine called the profits more, more addictive than drugs. It did. Then, stung by public criticism, officials in Beijing declared war on the country's dirty industries, including rare earths mining. The uh, demand for rare earths is expected to, this is the AP's word, explode by 300 to 700% within, within less than uh, 20 years. That's according to the International Energy Agency. And, of course, the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act, seen as a victory for the Biden administration, seen at least by the Biden administration as a victory, that act would increase demand for rare earths even more by subsidizing the sale of electric vehicles in one of the world's largest markets. See how all this works together? The disturbing reality is that the cash that fuels these abuses, like um, driving people in Myanmar off their land, ultimately comes from the world's fast-growing demand for these minerals, driven by the scaling up of green energy technologies says a senior researcher at Global Witness, which conducted fieldwork in Myanmar. The United States has called its dependence on rare earths from China a national security risk. There's probably papers about that in uh, Donald Trump's basement right now. As mines in China shuttered, ore prices rose in neighboring Myanmar home to some of the world's richest deposits, or what are known as heavy rare earths. Thousands of miners streamed across the border. It reminds me of the European colonial attitudes towards Africa, said an industry analyst, to avoid damaging ties with the Chinese government. He stays anonymous. You just can't be relying on third-world-type mining practices in a dictatorship like Myanmar. He says it's not sustainable. And deadline Sao Paulo. Deforestation in Brazil's Amazon rainforest reached a record high for the first seven months of this year. Preliminary government data showed as the region approaches the traditional peak of the annual burning season. <laughs> Happy burning season, everybody. Yeah, Brazil's doing real fine at the whole thing. Government satellite data showed 5,400 square no, sorry, 2,000 square miles cleared in the region from January to July. That's up 7% from the same period last year. So burning is, we're improving the rate of burning in Brazil. That's equal to an area seven times the size of New York City.
Why don't we just burn New York instead and say, no, sorry. Sorry, New York. Just kidding. It was the heaviest deforestation for the period since tracking began in 2015, according to uh, the uh, National Space Research Agency in Brazil, which collects the data. Environmentalists and experts blame President Bolsonaro for brawling back environmental protections, opening room for ranchers and loggers to illegally clear more of the Amazon. Of course, they don't pay him any money for that or anything. New research on Antarctica, including the first map of iceberg calving, doubles the previous estimates of loss from ice shelves and details how the continent of Antarctica is changing. The greatest uncertainty in forecasting global sea level rise is how Antarctica ice loss will accelerate as the climate warms. Two studies published this week and led by researchers from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory right over there in Pasadena reveal unexpected new data about how the Antarctic ice sheet has been losing mass in recent decades. One study published in the journal Nature maps how iceberg calving, the breaking off of ice from a glacier, has changed the Antarctic coastline over the last 25 years. Researchers found that the edge of the ice sheet has been shedding icebergs faster than the ice can be replaced. This is a surprise finding, apparently. It doubles previous estimates of ice loss from Antarctic's floating ice shelves since 1997, from 6 trillion to 12 million, sorry, 12 trillion metric tons. Ice loss from calving has weakened the ice shelves, allowed Antarctic glaciers to flow more rapidly to the ocean, accelerating the rate of global sea level rise. And the other study, published elsewhere, shows in unprecedented detail how the thinning of Antarctic ice as ocean water melts it has spread from the continent's outward edges into its interior, almost doubling in the western parts of the ice sheet over the past decade. Combined, the comp complementary reports give the most complete view yet of how the frozen continent is changing, losing its ice. Use the warm, ladies and gentlemen. It's copyrighted somewhere. But now some good news. During the first lockdown of the coronavirus pandemic, soot concentrations in the atmosphere over Western and Southern Europe fell by almost half. This is apparent from the comparison of two measurement campaigns carried out by a German research aircraft called HALO, in 2017 and 2020. A new study suggests that around 40% of the reduction can be attributed to a decrease in anthropogenic emissions. That's stuff that we do. We humans, let's all join hands and reduce our emissions, shall we? These findings reflect the major impact of human activity on air quality and the significance of soot as an important air pollutant and climate driver in the Anthropocene. That's our era right now. This, according to researchers from the Max Planck Institute for Chemistry and the German Aerospace Center at Leipzig University, among others, published in a specialist journal, Atmospheric Chemistry and Physics. I read it for the title. The research shows a significant improvement in air quality as a result of the pandemic. 
the amount of soot in the lower troposphere, ladies and gentlemen, of southern and western Europe, dropped by 41%. This uh, was verified with the aid of traffic data and information about fuel consumption during the lockdown periods. Uh, this drop is attributed to two main factors, ongoing efforts to reduce soot emissions in Germany and Europe, as well as limited travel as a result of the lockdowns, which, of course, increased uh, depression and other things, but soot is harmful to health and contributes to global warming. So, which you, would you rather have? The soot or the depression? And, speaking of driving, the latest version of Tesla's full self-driving autopilot has a little bit of a problem. Yes, yeah, a wee one. It doesn't appear to notice child-sized objects in its path. Well, you know, send the kids to Mars. Tests performed by the Dawn Project using a Tesla Model 3 equipped with full service, full self-driving version, the latest one. Vehicle was given 120 yards of straight track between two rows of cones with a child-sized mannequin at the end. The uh, group, the Dawn Project, says the test driver's hands were never on the wheel. Tesla says that autopilot is not a fully autonomous system, despite the name. I get the joke, Elon. The autopilot provides assistance and cruise control functionality to the driver. Driving at approximately 25 miles per hour, the Tesla hit the dummy each time. The Dawn Project said 100 yards of distance is more than enough for a human driver to notice a child. Tesla's full self-driving software says the Dawn Project fails the simple and safety-critical test repeatedly with potentially deadly results. The Dawn Project's stated goal is, quote, making computers safe for humanity, unquote. It's a small sample size in this uh, particular study, but um, not the first little bug to be found in autopilot last year. Tesla rolled back full self-driving software releases after software bugs were discovered. Bugs. They caused troubles with left turns. Tesla is still working on that. Turns out they've realized left turns are kind of common. And another study of Tesla comes from the U.S. National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA. They've upgraded a probe of Tesla Autopilot after it found reasons to look into whether Autopilot and associated Tesla systems may exacerbate human factors or behavioral safety risks. The investigation is ongoing. And the California Department of Motor Vehicles has filed complaints against Tesla alleging it misrepresented claims the vehicles can drive auto oh sorry autonomously if Tesla doesn't respond by the end of this week that would be last week now the case will be settled by default and could lead to the automaker losing its license to sell cars in California so we'll be looking to uh, see what happened maybe over the weekend Ladies and gentlemen, this is about a year since 
the end of America's longest war. And the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, whose reports the show has featured, John Sopko now says, we need to open up that ugly history book called The 20 Years in Afghanistan and see why we failed. A Reuters look back at all this says as the United States was preparing to leave Afghanistan, officials across the government steeled themselves for intense public scrutiny into how America's longest war ended in shambles, with the Taliban taking power once again. That scrutiny has been absent. The Biden administration portrays the pullout from Afghanistan and extraction operation, one of the largest airlifts ever, as an extraordinary success that wound up in wound up an endless conflict that killed more than 3,500 Americans and foreign troops and hundreds of thousands of Afghans. The evacuation ferried more than 124,000 Americans and Afghans to safety over 15 days. Tens of thousands of Afghans, many of whom worked for the U.S., have now resettled in the United States. Biden was left a mess by his predecessor, who committed to completing the Trump pullout, the troop pullout by May of 2021 without processing a massive backlog of visa applications from Afghans who worked for the U.S. government. We inherited a deadline, but, no, but not a plan for withdrawal, said a National Security Council spokesperson. But some U.S. officials, experts, and private evacuation organizers say the Biden administration has avoided taking responsibility for misreading the speed of the Taliban advance. The U.S. military and the State Department have been preparing so-called after-action reviews on their roles in the withdrawal, but it's unclear if their reports will ever be made public. Two U.S. officials say that Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin sent back the military's initial after-action review because he was dissatisfied with the limited insight it provided. The report is now complete. Austin is reviewing it. The State Department spokesman could not say when or in what form it would release its report. We're going to have to take a black eye on our performance over the past years, said another official, staying anonymous because he's no dummy. Pentagon chief, after an Air Force Inspector General investigation, concluded in December that no U.S. military personnel would be held accountable for a drone strike in Kabul that killed 10 civilians, including seven children, in the final days of the evacuation. Pentagon says it will compensate the family and relocate them, but nearly a year has passed without either of those happening. U.S. officials say... There has been progress. A congressional commission approved by the president, Biden, to study the history of the U.S. intervention and the pullout, America's longest war. It's not yet begun its work. Why? Because Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell 
has not named a Republican co-chair. Something he does a lot, if I recall correctly. From Santa Monica, this is Le Show. And, um, of course, the big news this week almost wiped everything else off the front page, the way the big news always does. One thought at a time, ladies and gentlemen. Um, the story, of course, was the carrying out of a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago, the Florida home of the former president, the world's sorest loser. FBI agents went in there at 10 o'clock in the morning. They didn't wake anybody up. And um, walked away with some uh, 
documents, presumably, we don't really know what they are yet, but what they were looking for were docu documents that belong to the National Archives, presidential records that, in violation of the Presidential Records Act, were not handed over to the archives when uh, the Trump the Trump operation skedaddled out of D.C. And uh, the week has been full of speculation. Of course, um, the Attorney General Merrick Garland finally deigned to give a public statement against his better judgment. But he didn't say very much, so his better judgment, I guess, won. But the, um, there was a flurry of Republican support for Trump in the early hours and days after uh, the FBI operation, which he called a raid, among the other derogatory terms he applied to it and them. Then, uh, as the days went on and uh, more information came out about what was located and what was being searched for, search warrant became public, um, the Republican support chorus just, just turned it down, turned the volume down just a little bit. There are, of course, more questions and answers in this story up uh, right now. First of all, what exactly were these documents? Uh, the word nuclear has been bandied about a bit. Um and certain terms indicating a high level of classification have also been bandied about a bit. But we don't really know much yet about these documents, what's in them. We don't really know why Trump removed them from the uh, White House system, which would have turned them over automatically to the National Archives as his term ended. And we don't know why, over a long period of time, we're now learning that he and his operation and the Justice Department have been discussing these documents and turning over a few of them at a time, but still leaving plenty of them in a padlocked room, basement room, at Mar-a-Lago to this date, to this, to this week, when the FBI came and took them. Why was Donald Trump holding on to these documents? A lot of speculation, of course, bolstered by the fact that the search warrant said on its face that it was being served to investigate possible violations of the Espionage Act. Now, there are people who have been put in jail for violating the Espionage Act for having one piece of paper out of place. So what, what was Trump's plan? This videotape just arriving here at Le Show might help us to understand. The magnificent basement of the even more magnificent Mar-a-Lago estate. Even I'm impressed, and I own it. Hi, I'm the 45th President of the United States, 
And this is where some of the most important documents of my presidency are kept under lock and sometimes even key. Until now, you'd have to be a relative or an international business partner of mine to even see a list of these documents. But now, thanks to a horrible seizure, not mine, I'm fine, many parts of this invaluable collection can be yours for a price that even I think is way too low. Welcome to the Trump Collection. From not even secret to more secret than even I know about, it's all here. Letters to world leaders, weapons codes, confidential commentaries about female officials, reprinted directly from the originals and printed on 100% extra nice paper just for you. Frame a Trump document to fancy up any room. Use them as placemats for a super swell dinner party or place them where you do your regular reading. Take it from me, the Trump docs turn every home into a little Smithsonian. In the recent past, you'd have to be a world leader paying six figures to have access to this one-of-a-kind collection. But now, thanks to legal proceedings, we're still challenging. You could own a page from the Trump collection for as little as $100 a month. But this special offer won't last forever. If you don't believe me, just ask the judge. We'll send you the complete list of what's in the Trump collection, and with your online order, we'll rush you by return postal delivery, your piece of the greatest period of American history since the 2016 election. So rush your request for the Trump collection list before midnight tonight, and you'll be enjoying your souvenir of greatness before the grand jury is even seated. And if anyone asks, tell them I sent you. Don't worry if I deny it. That's for your protection. So act now. Like he said, act now. People are standing by. And now, news of our friend the Atom. Clean, safe, too cheap to meet. Save, cheap, too cheap to meet. Cheap, save, too cheap. Well, this is uh, proving that some people really aren't paying attention. U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission is set to approve the country's first-ever small modular reactor design, your SMR, setting up a potential expansion of small-scale nuclear power stations across the country. Certification was given to the company called NewScale for its SMRs, 76 feet tall, 15 feet wide, pressurized water reactors that can operate in groups of your four, your six, your 12, and uh, use passive processes to heat water and move it through the reactor stages. Produces each one 50 megawatts of power. They're able to be assembled at the factory before being shipped to their final destination. Once on site, the reactors are installed below ground level in a pool that serves as their primary heat sink. NRC certification means the design meets the agency's applicable safety requirements, according to the NRC. This is only the seventh reactor designed to be certified for use in the United States. It was originally submitted to the NRC in 2016. 
Late last year, when it was said it was approaching commercialization, New Scale gave a name to its power plants, Voyager without the A and without the E, but with the O. One vowel, if you're kind of keeping track. Companies working on several U.S.-based projects. One uh, slated for completion in 2029 at the U.S. Department of Energy's Idaho National Lab, dubbed the Carbon Free Power Project. The new facility will be located near Idaho Falls and will use six of the SMRs. So that's the good news. And here's the rest of the news. According to the Register, the British Tech Journal, concerns remain over SMR's feasibility because of the amount of waste they produce. A study released in June found that SMRs produce 35 times more waste than their larger predecessors, with much of it in long-lived equivalent waste and low- and intermediate-level waste. The study also found, if that's not enough, that the waste generated by SMRs is more reactive, making it a more dangerous substance to store. It may be the very nature of their design that makes them less safe. Reactive fuels and coolants are needed to catch stray neutrons that would normally be stopped by the walls of larger reactors. Those fuels and coolants become hazardous waste as well. All right, then. <laughs> Future looking brighter all the time. And so is the present. The situation at Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear power plant has deteriorated rapidly to the point of becoming, quote, very alarming. That's the word this week from um, the Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency talking to the Security Council. These military actions near such a large nuclear facility could lead to very serious consequences, said Rafael Grossi, at the meeting which was requested by Russia. The meeting was marked by resounding calls to allow the agency's technical experts to visit the area amid mounting safety concerns. The IAEA chief said that uh, the 5th of this month, the Zaporizhia plant, Europe's largest, was subjected to shelling, which caused several explosions near the electrical switchboard and a power shutdown. One reactor unit was disconnected from the electrical grid, triggering its emergency protection system and setting generators into operation to ensure power supply. There was also shelling at a nitrogen oxygen station, Firefighters extinguished the, bla the blaze, but repairs must still be examined and evaluated. There's no immediate threat to nuclear safety as a result of the shelling or other military actions. However, quote the head of the IAEA, this could change at any moment, unquote. Clean, cheap, safe. Too safe to meter, our friend the Adam. And now... The apologies of the week. So sorry. Amnesty International apologized this week for distress and anger caused by a report accusing U uh, Ukraine of endangering civilians. President Zelensky was infuriated by that. The, the uh, event triggered the resignation of Amnesty's Kiev office head. 
The rights group published the report saying the presence of Ukrainian troops in residential areas heightened risks to civilians. Amnesty International now, according to the uh, latest statement, deeply regrets the distress and anger that our press release on the Ukraine military's fighting tactics has caused, said in an email. Amnesty International's priority in this and in any conflict is ensuring that civilians are protected. This was our sole objective when releasing this latest piece of research. While we fully stand by our findings, we regret the pain caused. Zelensky had accused the group of trying to shift responsibility from Russian aggression. Amnesty's Ukraine head quit, saying the report was a propaganda gift for Moscow. Not really an apology, but a regret. Deadline now again to Rhode Island. The head pastor at St. Thomas More and St. Veronica Catholic Churches apologized to parishioners during last weekend's masses for the hurt and anguish caused when they found out through the media last week that their new assistant pastor had been removed from two other churches for inappropriate comments to children. Nice little head of hair you got there, kid. It's been a most difficult week for you, the entire parish, and to be honest, the most excruciating week of my priesthood, said the Reverend Marcel Tyon to his parishioners. Some thought Tyon's statement left them with more questions than answers about the Reverend Eric Silva and that the church fell short in taking responsibility. Father Tyon didn't mention the safety of children or children at all. Even once, his ability to be tone-deaf to the issue at hand is absolutely heart breathtaking in this omission, said Dr. Ann Hagen-Webb, a survivor of clergy abuse and representative of the Rhode Island Survivors Network of those abused by priests. She continued, the Catholic Church does everything in its power to protect children in the womb. After birth, they throw those children to their wolves in priests' clothing. The comments to children about their sexuality during confession is what got Father Silva placed on leave. Dion apologized that the outcry had unsettled and threatened to divide us, unquote. He asked the parishioners to pray, to pray for him and for each other. He led them in the prayer of St. Michael the Archangel, a prayer that has become the go-to at other churches roiled by sexual abuse scandals, calling for the defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. Unquote. However, for some, Tyana and the Diocese of Providence have left much unsaid. That report from the Boston Globe. Another apology in the church world, Elizabeth Eaton, presiding bishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, issued a public apology this week to members of a majority Latino immigrant congregation for the pain and trauma they endured after the predominantly white denomination's first openly transgender bishop unexpectedly fired their pastor. Speaking uh, during a church-wide assembly being held in Columbus, Ohio, Eaton delivered the apology to members of the Iglesia Luterana Santa Maria Peregrina in Stockton, California, thank you, describing the events that transpired as, quote, a sharp assault on your dignity. The uh, series of events that led to the apology began last December 12th when the Reverend Megan Rohrer, 
the nomination's first transgender bishop, who oversaw one of the church's 65 synods, announced to the congregation that their pastor, the Reverend Nelson Rabel Gonzalez, had been removed over allegations of verbal harassment and retaliation. Rohrer oversaw nearly 200 congregations in Northern California and Northern Nevada. Her shocking announcement upended the congregation's much-anticipated celebration of the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. The community had planned an elaborate program that day with mariachi singers, traditional dancers, and performances by children, all led by their pastor. After the pastor's firing, the congregation lost the denomination's financial backing and were forced to vacate their building and worship in the parking lot. Well, at least if it was Sunday, use of the parking lot was probably free. And, finally, a sports apology. New York Giants offensive line coach Bobby Johnson apologized for his role in a brawl at Monday's practice. Imagine violence breaking out in a football practice. Johnson didn't attempt to pacify angry players, but instead intensified things by punching, sorry, pushing linebacker Cam Brown. The incident Monday, I take full responsibility, Johnson said during a regularly scheduled news conference. I'm remorseful. It can't happen. It won't happen again. I've apologized to the appropriate people, in particular Cam, player he punched. I, I, I have to be better than that, he says. It's not what we're looking for. It's a regrettable incident that can't and won't happen again. It was what's uh, described by NBC Sports as a chippy practice. I don't know who was the chippy. And th- Now, this really is finally, because it came all the way from Canada. Family members are still searching for answers after the Mounties, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, apologized for not properly investigating an indigenous woman's death more than five decades ago. Tootsie Jimmy Charlie, a 26-year-old Casca member of the Liard First Nation and a mother of four went missing in 1967 several weeks after she was expected to return home from a travel the Mounties informed her that her body had been discovered informed them that her body had been discovered at a dump in Whitehorse on Friday of this week the Yukon Mounties apologized to friends and relatives of Jimmy Charlie at a cultural center in Whitehorse for failing to properly investigate her death. Her younger sister, who attended the apology, said her family had mixed emotions, including relief and anger that it had taken so long. She said she's hopeful that the Mounties' commitment to change and improve its relationship with indigenous people means something like this won't happen again. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this week's edition of the show. Back at the same time on these same radio stations, just about a week from now. No, exactly a week from now. Who am I kidding? And on your audio device of choice, whenever you want it. And it would be just like applying some retroactive scrutiny to America's longest war, if you'd agree to be with me then, would you? Already, thank you very much, Uh uh-huh. A tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego desk, to Pam Halstead, and to Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's program. The email address, still, still got one. Along with um, the music playlist for today's program and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts. I think he's still there. He's applying his own scrutiny. All at harryshearer.com, along with a lot more. Stuff to watch, stuff to listen to, stuff to read. Wow. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from Santa Monica.